when it gets down to implementation of Paris, that's really where the action is. I mean, 70% of global emissions are coming from cities in one form or another. The business community obviously drives investment and helps determine what kind of technologies we're going to use. Here in the U.S., it's, it's state and local governments that really set the bulk of policy on electricity regulation, on transportation planning, on building codes, etc. So you, you're going to see that continue and grow. It was on the upswing going into Paris. It's, it's really taking off. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancox and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on climate change in partnership with our friends at the Climate Action Business Association, or CABA. CABA's mission is to help solve the climate crisis by organizing local business leaders to be more effective advocates for climate action within their businesses and communities, as well as at the state, national, and even international levels. You can learn more about CABA at cabaus.org. Our topic today is the upcoming United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP23 meeting, which kicks off on November 6th in Bonn, Germany. My co-host today is Michael Green, the Executive Director of the Climate Action Business Association. Michael, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, and it's uh, great to be jumping on just before we head out to Bonn, Germany. Got the bags almost packed and uh, ready to head off uh, to Europe for a couple of weeks. Should be a really exciting opportunity, catching up with some old colleagues and uh, seeing how the new administration uh, handles the tough negotiations that is the UNFCCC and the COP process. Fantastic. And we have a fantastic guest today, but Michael, maybe just give folks a very brief framing of what the COP23 meeting is all about, put it into context, and then you know jump in and introduce our guest. Yeah, sure. So COP23 is going to be the first time that our new administration gets to represent the U.S. government and our interests over at the COPs. And for those who haven't been following the number 23, this is the 23rd time these rounds of negotiations and conversations have happened. The most recent highlight, of course, many of you know, the Paris Agreement signed in 2015 was a result of this process. The Kyoto Protocol, if we go back, as well as the Copenhagen Accord, all important steps in getting us to kind of the current landscape. But we're going to get into a little bit of the landscape, how it came about, the challenges that we we face in moving forward. And with that, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest on today's show. Alden Meyer is the Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists and is the Director of the Washington, D.C. office. He provides general oversight, strategic guidance for the organization's advocacy on energy, 
transportation, agriculture, and arms control issues. Alden, happy to have you on the show today. Glad to be with you, Michael. So now I, I mentioned that this is the 23rd COP. How long have you been attending the conferences for? Well, the actual uh, process started back in 1991 with the negotiations of the Framework Convention on Climate Change that was adopted in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. That was actually three years before the first conference of the parties meeting, which happened in 1995 in Berlin. And I've been to all but one of the 23 annual COPs since then. Wow. Now, now during this time, I'm sure you've seen the U.S. administration really play a varying role. I caught the last COP during the Bush administration. So I've been privy to that a little bit myself. But, you know, going from President Bush to President Obama, we really saw the pendulum swing. And there were some major differences in, in U.S. leadership between those years. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, of course, President Bush, George W. Bush, came into office saying the U.S. would not go along with the Kyoto Protocol that President Clinton, Vice President Gore had negotiated, announced that uh, we were withdrawing from that and therefore Kyoto was dead. The rest of the world obviously didn't agree with that. They decided to go ahead with Kyoto without the U.S. and the, the Bush administration was sort of on the margins of that for the rest of their term. They did participate in the negotiations that led up to Copenhagen before Obama came in looking to expand the activities of both developed and developing countries in addressing their increasing emissions of greenhouse gases. When President Obama came in, he obviously was willing to go farther than President Bush in terms of action here at home in the U.S., taking action on increasing the efficiency of passenger vehicles and light trucks, leading up to the clean power plan in the second uh, term of his administration, and doing more than President Bush had done to address U.S. emissions, putting us on a downward path. He obviously, with his team, Secretary Kerry, John Podesta, and others, helped with the drive to get the Paris Agreement in 2015, and then working particularly with China to encourage enough countries to formally ratify it last year so that it took effect uh, before he left office. And the President Obama administration not only changed the role in which, and from my uh, standpoint at least, uh, not only just changed the role in what we were saying at the cause, but also how we were perceived as a, really a global leader on the issue, especially even in the difference between Copenhagen and Paris, the U.S. kind of stepped into a, a little bit more of a leadership or or kind of leadership team core role. Is that correct? Yeah, I would I would say that's correct, particularly in the second term of the administration when President Obama realized that he was going to have to go this alone without the Congress. You remember in the first term, there was an effort to get the Waxman-Markey bill through the Senate and get a binding cap on U.S. emissions. That failed in the Senate. In his second term, President Obama understood that he needed to take the lead through his executive authority, both domestically and internationally, pressing ahead with the negotiations that led to the Paris Accord. I would say the administration, along with China, really deserves a lot of the credit for brokering the deal over the nationally determined commitments that we see in the Paris Agreement and, and allowing uh, virtually every country in the world, uh, with the exception of Syria and Nicaragua, to participate in Paris, of course, until President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from Paris under his watch. And, and we're going to get into a little bit of the current administration's uh, standing. But before we get there, as I was drafting my kind of questions and thoughts for this podcast, one of the things that came up to me is, you know, I could name who was formulating 
the U.S. opinion and proposals that we would be seeing at the COP over the last eight years well in advance. But now with so much, I guess there's, there's vacancy, for lack of a better word, within the EPA and within the State Department, it's left me questioning a little bit okay, we have uh, President Trump and and Rex Tillerson at the helm of the federal government, but who's really going to be leading the U.S. delegation going into COP23? Well, you've actually got two teams here. You've got the professional team from the State Department with a few folks from other agencies that remains very similar to what was in place under President Obama, led by Trig Talley at the State Department. They'll be doing the day-to-day negotiations on the ground on on the issues around Paris implementation. Then you've got the political team that comes in for the second week of the COP. That'll be headed up by Tom Shannon, who's the acting undersecretary for political affairs at the State Department, along with senior officials from the White House. And they'll be making the call on any ministerial discussions that go on that second week. I should note, though, that this COP is not going to be a heavy lift in terms of major decisions being made at the political level that second week. A lot of those will be left for COP24 next December in Katowice, Poland, where they're supposed to agree on the set of implementation rules for Paris, as well as how to ramp up the ambition of national commitments over the next several years. So, so we're definitely going to see uh, maybe some of the same faces, which is is exciting, you know. I guess to to those of us who've been following the process and and have formed the relationships and and think that maybe then will we still see some of the same U.S. leadership or or how are they justifying kind of a a rollback and change in the U.S. government stance going into COP twenty three? Well, it's a tricky landscape for them to navigate because uh, on the one hand, so far they've got the ability to maintain fairly progressive U.S. positions on issues like transparency and reporting, counting rules for land use, market mechanisms, the whole host of of both political and technical issues that underlie this international regime. But on the other hand, the president has announced that he intends to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. And so I think that puts them in a, in a difficult situation where they will have to keep their head low and, and sort of operate below the radar screen uh, in, the, in the private negotiations, but not be too visible in the talks. Because, of course, there are a number of countries that are angry about what President Trump has said about withdrawing the U.S., the world's largest economy, second largest carbon emitter from the Paris Agreement. So it puts the professional staff and a bit of a a bind, but because they are professional and have strong relationships, I think they will navigate those difficulties fairly skillfully and, and hopefully continue to provide some leadership in the technical negotiations behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and I guess that that kind of how they decide to act and where kind of behind the scenes on a low profile, as you said, you know, it's kind of reflective. The, the American first agenda is, you know, it's really about American resiliency. However, it also can be viewed as kind of a new form of American isolationism. The president, you know, you, you mentioned his announcement of withdrawal. You know, in that same announcement in the Rose Garden, he made that comment of he was elected to represent the people of Pittsburgh, not Paris, which really, to me, goes to how little he may even understand what the Paris Agreement meant or or even stood for. Going into this year's COP and next year, where we're talking about 
increasing ambition. How can we anticipate the U.S. to contribute to that main theme of the conversation of of moving ambition forward when they seem to be going the other way a little bit here? Well, yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that President Trump doesn't understand very much at all about the Paris Agreement, doesn't understand why it's in our own national interest to protect our people from the impacts of climate change and equally to share in the opportunities and the jobs and economic prosperity created by the solutions to climate change. He doesn't seem to get that at all. He seems to be nostalgic to go back to the 19th century and increase our reliance on coal, the most polluting of the fossil fuels. That being said, there's going to be another element there in in Bonn in a couple of weeks, which is a very uh, strong and robust presence from mayors, uh, governors, business leaders, and others that have come together in what's called the We Are Still In initiative, saying that despite what President Trump may or may not do at the federal level, that the cities, states, and businesses that are taking uh, commitments and action on climate change intend to try to do their best to keep the United States on track to meet our Paris commitments. That's a very exciting development. We're going to see Governor Brown from California, Governor Inslee from Washington, Governor McAuliffe from Virginia, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and a host of others. They're putting forward what they're calling America's Pledge which is that we are still committed at every level of society to do our part in addressing this global crisis, even if President Trump doesn't seem you to know, get it. I've had the pleasure in the past of attending COPS and, and as a business association, you know, we've brought our member businesses, we've brought academics and other researchers. This year, actually, uh, we're bringing state legislators from Massachusetts, kind of with that same message of, you know, we're still in, we're still supportive and really taking a stance for American leadership. My question, though, is with the U.S. somewhat stepping back, rolling back, rolling back regulation, you know, Europe has kind of their own internal challenges with Brexit, things happening in in Spain and Catalonia. Is that symbolic or or are we actually going to see, you know, maybe bilateral conversations between subnational actors? What, What can we expect from them going into the next few weeks? Well, actually, the the subnational scene is very vibrant. You've had global coalitions of legislators, of subnational governors and and provincial prime ministers. Uh, Obviously, the business community internationally is very well organized. And when it gets down to implementation of Paris, that's really where the action is. I mean, 70% of global emissions are coming from cities in one form or another. The business community obviously drives investment and helps determine what kind of technologies we're going to use. Here in the U.S., it's it's state and local governments that really set the bulk of policy on electricity regulation, on transportation planning, on building codes, et cetera. So you, you're going to see that that continue and grow. It was on the upswing going into Paris. It's it's really taking off in a in a kind of weird way in reaction to what President Trump did, just like the rest of the world said to the U.S. in 2001 when George Bush declared Kyoto was dead. Uh, You're not the decider here, George. They seem to be saying to President Trump that this isn't your call and we're going to continue to do what's best for our people, what's best for the planet, for our children and grandchildren. So that that gives me hope. That being said, the Trump administration is doing a fair amount of damage here in in Washington on issues uh, like EPA uh, regulation of methane emissions from oil and gas, rolling back the clean power plan standards, which would have encouraged more states to come up to the level that Massachusetts, California, and others are at in terms of driving utilities towards clean electricity. So it's not all, uh, you know, all sweetness and light. There is some real 
damage being done. And it's not helpful given that ultimately we need to go to net zero global emissions in the second half of the century if we're going to really stay ahead of this this problem. But I think a lot of people around the world are looking at that this administration as as an aberration, a deviation in U.S. policy, and are confident that the U.S. will return to its senses uh, once President Trump leaves office one way or the other. And I think that's the reassurance that the governors, the mayors, the business leaders intend to provide, that President Trump really doesn't represent the long-term direction of U.S. climate and energy policy. And all kind of to maybe wrap up here a little bit, tell me, you know, heading over to represent the Union Concerned Scientists, what does a successful COP20? Well, there's a number of things we hope to get out of this one. One is is real progress towards uh, negotiating the rules of the Paris Agreement, which have to be done by COP24 next year. A whole host of difficult issues like how will China, India, and other developing countries come up to the level of robust reporting on their actions and their emissions inventories that countries like the U.S. are required to do now? How do you structure the market mechanisms that are established under Paris to allow countries to cooperate in meeting their commitments? How do you deal with accounting for land use emissions, which is a very tricky technical issue, and and land use is a good chunk of global emissions, so it's important to get that right. That's one front, sort of keeping that process moving, uh, assuring countries that their concerns will be heard and that we're on track to finalize those negotiations by next year. Another one is is setting up uh, what's called the facilitative dialogue on mitigation ambition for next year's COP in Poland, which is looking at the gap between the commitments that countries have made to limit their emissions and the level of ambition that's needed to meet the Paris temperature goals of holding temperature increases well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. It's important that we get that process right and that it really lead to some breakthroughs coming out of next year's COP in terms of what countries are willing to do to sharpen their pencils and and do more on the ground in their home countries. And, And fortunately there, the The Fiji presidency of this conference of the parties has been consulting broadly uh, with countries and has strong support for its vision of an inclusive and dynamic process over the next year to lead up to that that dialogue at COP24. We have to make sure, of course, that the U.S. doesn't resist or try to water that down or impede it. So far, we haven't seen signs of that, but we're watching out for that. And third, I would say, you know, no matter what we do on the mitigation ambition side, we know the impacts of climate change are going to continue to increase for the next several decades because of past emissions and the sort of inertial lag in the climate system. So we need to figure out ways to ramp up both financial and, and technical assistance to the most vulnerable developing countries that are, that are faced with these uh, devastating impacts, whether it's sea level rise, typhoons and storms, drought and desertification. Uh, we know that this is going to only get worse in the near term, and we have a responsibility to help them there. So I know the Fiji presidency puts a high priority on on getting some initiatives going on that front, and we'll be trying to help them do that. All right. We're talking about COP23 with Alden Meyer, Director of Strategy and Policy for Union Concerned Scientists down in D.C. Alden, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, and I hope to see you over in Bonn. Yep. I will look for you over there. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com 
or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.